on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. Time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhausts. Time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the F-14 TomCast, episode five. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to a real live Iranian F-14 pilot. All right, so now some of the things you'll notice is uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice that this is an audio-only interview for our guest, um, and that's just uh, for his own personal safety. You may hear in the in the interview, you may hear some airplanes in the background of his audio. He happens to be standing near an airfield while we're conducting the interview. We're going to do our best to avoid talking about the politics of the day and instead stick to just flying the F-14 as a pilot and talking to talking to him as a fellow air crew flying the F-14. And that's our goal today. I think a lot of people are looking forward to this one, so let's get started. Hi, I'm Dave Baronic, call sign bio. I was an F-14 radar intercept officer, Rio. In three squadron tours, I totaled uh, 2,500 Tomcat flight hours, and I got about 650 traps. I was also a Top Gun instructor in the uh, mid-1980s. And my name is Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch, and I was an F-14 pilot uh, from about 1995 to 2006 during the end, the last several years of the F-14's lifetime. I, too, was a Top Gun instructor, and I had several tours, including a couple tours as commanding officers, as well as Air Boss on the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome back to the F-14 TomCast. Today, we're talking to a former Iranian F-14 pilot. That's right, Iranian. Our guest flew the mighty Tomcat in the Iranian Air Force in the early 1990s, becoming an enthusiastic fan of the big fighter. He joins us today to describe the only foreign Air Force to operate the Tomcat and shed some light on a program shrouded in mystery. All right. Well, hey, Mikey, uh, it's great to have you. I'm sorry. I just uh, talked right over you. Keep going. No, no, that's all right. I'm uh, uh... Very happy to be here. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. And uh, you know, it's it's very exciting. Uh, such a small community that we all uh, somehow find each other and get to know each other. Uh, before anything, I just want to uh, mention uh, and a tribute to a, a top Tomcatter that we are uh, mourning his loss today. And uh, I had the privilege to meet him and talk to him. Such a great guy, very enthusiast. Uh, I, I cannot uh, even say good things about him enough that uh, when I met him and I was like, who is this guy flying the F-86 that low into the water with the American flag on it? And then later that night I met Snort and uh, we had a great chat about Tomcat, about all the stuff that we're going to talk today. And I'm definitely mourning his loss and I really miss him. Well, and just for the audience, uh, Mikey's referring to uh, Snort Snodgrass, who uh, died just a few days before we uh, recorded this episode. And and that was a very nice tribute. We uh, joined him in uh, mourning Snort's passing. Okay, in the interest of our guest's personal security, we will leave out some personal details, and we're going to concentrate on Iranian F-14s and Iran's Air Force. 
we'll also go out of our way to skip political or religious statements. So welcome, Mikey, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. It is great to uh, meet you guys. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the chat with you guys now. Well, hey, hey, Mikey, it's great to have you. Hey, Crunch here for those of, us, those of you just listening audio only. So Crunch here. Um, and, and Mikey, it's, it's absolutely what an honor to have an opportunity to talk to you here. And just real quick for everybody, well, not real quick, take your time. Um, tell us a little about yourself. Where are you from and, you know, how you got into flying the F-14? All right. Uh, well, um, I, I was born in Iran uh, and uh, about 15 minutes after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. So uh, uh, that's uh, my, my original name comes from, from that. And uh, then since then, I don't know if it was a coincidence or something. I, I always was interested about space and everything and then i grew up in south america before i went back to iran and i knew that all the astronauts especially the space shuttle program they're all like a former air force pilots commanders and i said i want to be an astronaut i want to go to space and this is the way that i want to go and i joined the air force at that time you know i was in iran so my only choice was joining the iranian air force we had few family friends and stuff who were in the air force of course previously in the you know in the when the king was in power so at that time it was a very prestigious job and uh so the in iran they're they're kind of like a national heroes you know the the pilots especially fighter pilots and stuff they they treat you like national heroes and everything so they're very respectful toward them and I always wanted to uh, be an astronaut. So I was like, okay, I'll, you know, the first step I have to do is go to the Air Force and start flying fighter jets and then find my way to a space shuttle. <laughs> so <laughs> One, two, three, it's uh, that simple. Yeah, so that's, uh, that, was, that was my dream. And then I saw guys like Hooter and stuff that, you know, they went from Tomcats into space shuttle and astronaut program. I was like, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. So, so, so you all did you always want to fly the F fourteen then, or, or just were you like I just want to go um, fly fighters? Uh, I wanted I wanted to fly fighters. I always wanted to fly fighters. I um, you know I wanted to experience that. And then um, I remember the movie Top Gun came out. I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do this. And then a few years later, you know, when I was uh, get selected. For the tomcat and it was very few hours i only had like about 500 something hours on on the f5s and uh, which the commander called me and said that yeah so you're you're selected because i think at that time the program was um they wanted the experienced pilots for the tomcat but at the same time they wanted uh, a younger guys who while they go through the training they can uh service longer than the uh, you know former experienced f4 pilots or f5 pilots that you know they only have like 10 years or 12 years to retirement to go so they wanted to bring the younger guys in train them and you know use them for a longer time and gain more experience sounds like you were in the right place at the right time and also i mean i mean like many people who are in the right place at the right time you had qualifications and the skills and so you know they selected you so that's good hey mikey before we go any further uh, can we go into some background of Iran getting the F-14? Um, the story that we have, you know, I'm looking at my F-14 uh, reference books on my bookshelf, and it talks about the Soviet 
not not Russian, but back in the Soviet Union days, make twenty five fox bats over flying uh, Iran. Um, is did you did you hear that story? And the, uh, they wanted to get the F fourteens to uh, preserve their sovereignty. Uh, yes, actually, uh, as you know, the king of Iran was the, the U.S. closest ally um, back uh, in the seventies. You know, in the Middle East and. Uh, from what I heard, again, I, I say it from my own point of view because I was much younger when you know when I was there. So these are the stories that I hear from some of the more senior officers and the people and some research that I've done. Uh, so because uh, because of the closeness that the Iran had with the U.S., you know, of course, the Russia in the north was very sensitive toward that. So at that time, I don't know, there were no satellites or spy satellites or something like that. So there were the MiG-25s that were coming over Iran to take pictures and, uh, you know, do all the reconnaissance. And uh, at that time, the fighters that we had, the F-4s, uh, you know, they were not able to uh, intercept and get, by the time they would get up there, you know, the, the MiG-25 was gone. So we needed something that we can... Um, um, protect ourselves or prevent them to, you know, enter Iranian aerospace. And I believe the, the race was between the F-15 and the F-14 to sell uh, to Iran. And um, the Air Force was really trying very hard to sell the F-15 to Iran. But because of um, the limitations that at that time the F-15 had with the radars and the missiles, uh, the F-14 was much better choice for what Iran wanted uh, the program for, and it proven to be to be the right choice for us. In one of the books that I read, uh, written by an um, U.S. admiral, in one part it was very funny. Uh, he mentioned that it was one of the life ironics that an Iranian bank saved the life of. What it turns out to be the greatest fighter jet in the world. No, so oh, I this is I've read that too. That that is, uh, I mean, that's documented. Like, like I said, it's I've got my Tomcat reference books, and the problem was I'm I'm going to just give a short version of it. Uh, well, you got to go back to the early '70s when the Tomcat was under development, and um, and uh, the Navy was planning to buy it. Congress and, you know, defense commentators freaked out because the jet was more than 10 million bucks a copy. And so Grumman did everything they could to keep the price down. And as I understand it, they negotiated a contract uh, that put the burden on them to absorb cost increases or something like that. And then uh, inflation went up, costs went up, and Grumman was uh, on the verge of going insolvent. And so an Iranian bank uh, loaned them the money uh, to, to save their business. Yes, it, this is something I heard, too. I think the Shah, who was also the pilot, uh, the king, we say the Shah is the king, who was also a pilot. He came personally to, to the U.S. and uh, saw both demonstration of the F-15 and the F-14. And uh, he chose the F-14. And he mentioned uh, apparently there was something wrong with the budget and stuff. And he said, I pay for it, but the first 100 Tomcats are mine. I heard something like that. <laughs> okay. uh, so so this is, uh, I believe this is how the Groman got the 
uh, that power to continue with the development of the of the plane. And what a beautiful plane! So and so so you so back in the day then was it a buy? The size of the buy was a hundred. I I don't know the answer to that. Is, was it a hundred? I have no idea. I, I know that there were eighty. Yeah. One stick in in uh, in Groman factory, or I believe in Miramar, for the test for the missile test, and seventy nine was delivered. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was uh, that's that's my uh, understanding of the of the project. You of know, course, when we were getting ready to do this interview, I looked at my books again, and and some of them said that uh, there were eighty, like uh, Mikey just said. 79 were delivered, but, and they said that there was a plan for at least 40 more, but that, you know, that got uh, cut off. Things changed. When the regime changed. Yeah. 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 Probably. And the other thing was that um, uh, Iran was the first uh, foreign uh, client for the F-16s and they ordered 300 F-16s, which a lot of people don't know about it because the Iranian F-5 is supposed to be sold to Jordan. And one of our relatives uh, that we, I used to call him uncle. He was one of the first group of pilots, F-5 pilots that went to Shepard Air Force Base in Texas to train on the F-16s and prepare for the first batch of 160 F-16s to be delivered to, to Iran. Wow. And then of course the revolution happened. And uh, when the revolution happened, the, the shipment stopped. Uh, General Dynamics was panicking because they were like going bankrupt because their first order of 300 F-16 went down and they didn't know what to do with it. And I heard those F-16s went to Israel. And uh, that was the first. So this is this is what happened. Interesting. I, I, oh, you know, this is this is the best I know. But again, like uh, my uh, opinion or everything I say in here is based on the things that I know. So, uh, you know, I mean, I just just want to make one comment crunch and then I'll let you uh, to get back to the interview. But I mean, I think our listeners now in 2021 who are used to a certain world order that people, you know, have this, things were pretty dynamic back then in the, uh, in the late seventies. And uh, it was an exciting time. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. So, you know, bio, thanks for bringing it up. Cause I tell you, um, you know, it's easy to forget that back in the 70s, you know, we were all allies. We were all friends. And that's why, how this buy happened. And, and Mikey, you said something interesting that the competition was between the F-15 and the F-14. And you said something about the radar weapon system making the F-14 more attractive. Can you talk more about that? Well, yeah. So basically, when uh, we get uh, with the radar uh, on the F-14, at that time, uh, I think uh, the analysis that they did, it was further superior than the F-15. And because you had two crew working together, so one crew could only concentrate on the weapons and the radar system and everything, uh, it would make the, the team work much better. And because Iran was already an F-4, F4 operator, I, I again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Iran was the, one of the biggest F-4 operators outside of the United States. I think we had over 300 F-4s, different variants. That we were operating sure and uh so because of that i think uh, the air force was more relying on two seat uh fighter uh, two uh, group of two teams working together as a radar officer and a pilot and to be honest with you at that time and i don't know even right now there is no platform like the aug 9 with the phoenix missiles 
um, that exist. Um, well, so I believe yeah. Hill is proving itself to be superior. I mean, uh, the Navy tried to replace the F-14 with the F-18. And eventually you see that now the F-18 is getting bigger. <laughs> now it's bigger and not looking at the wrong uh, range uh, missiles on the two-seater F-18. And let's call it the Super Hornet. I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is like a F-14 again and the new skin. So the concept of the F-14 of two, two uh, crew working together with a better radar, longer range missile is kind of like coming back again. So yeah. I believe it was a superior. And for what Iran wanted it with the MiG-25s, um, it, there was nothing like it. See, right? that, yeah, that's a, big, that's a big thing. The Phoenix was the only missile around that had anti-Foxbat capability. You know, Crunch, I'm going to say one more thing, and I feel like sometimes here we're busting, bursting bubbles or, or busting myths, but uh, there's a lot of Tomcat community lore that the fly-off at Andrews Air Force Base between the F-14 and the F-15 was the thing that made the decision. And, I mean, I give full credit to the Grumman crew that flew that fly-off, and I read the account of that, and it is just incredible. But, but there's a book about uh, where they... Uh, interviewed Iranian Air Force officers, and they go, come on, we would not make that decision based on one little air show. They go, we did our homework, and the F-14 was, mm -hmm. you know, the plane that we needed, the weapon system that we needed. Right, because you think about it, at the time, they've got, they've already got the F-4. The F-4 shoots the Sparrow. Guess what the F-15 was shooting back then? It was shooting the Sparrow. That, that was it. Meanwhile, you got the uh, aim uh, F-14 built around the AUG-9 radar and the AIM-54 weapon system designed for long-range shots at yep. things like fox bats and, and stuff. So, yep. great. Hey, hey, Mikey, so uh, shifting gears for a little bit here. So we, we've talked about this. Let's go back to the beginning. You mentioned earlier something very interesting. You talked about how they wanted to get some younger blood in there when you first started. And I, I'm, I'm curious. So uh, basically, for, for everybody's uh you know awareness what kind of what years are we talking about here where you started flying the tomcat uh, i'm uh, uh well i joined there in 1989 and i left uh, or defected i should say in 1993 so this is that era that i was there that was the time that uh the war kind of like ended mm -hmm. with iraq that long 10-year war ended with iraq so the whole air force was going into like a recovery mm -hmm. and rebuilding Again. So, so, so because of that, they were like trying very hard to rebuild it as soon as possible in case another conflict gotcha. rises. So they were they were bringing in a whole bunch of younger blood to replace some of the older guys at the time. Was it always that way, or did people have to start off with F fives or F fours before they moved over to the Tomcat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely, you definitely wouldn't get the F fourteen on your first choice and coming in, you know, as a nugget and go on the F fourteen. No. You uh, usually, um, before there were F4 Phantom guys, which are like way, way more experienced. And uh, after that, the F5 guys were coming in and that was my background. So I was, I was like flying in the F5s and I'm still like a student, right? So I was still on the student side and flying the F5s. And I think based on the parameters and your flying characteristic and how you work and stuff and they graded you, uh, you were just lucky enough that, you know, the position opens up and I was like one of the youngest guys that came on the Tomcat and I was surprised because when I got uh, selected and my commander called me, 
um, again, I'm not going to mention any names or anything uh, because of that. <laughs> he took off his U.S. Air Force ring that he got it when he graduated from U.S. US Air Force. Uh, and he gave his U.S. Air Force ring to me. And to this day, I'm still wearing his U.S. Air Force ring. It's, I'm still wearing it right now. And it's in my hand. And he said, congratulations. And, you know, you've done great. And we hope to see you doing other great stuff. So, yeah. For me, it was it was like an honor. So uh, I couldn't believe it when I came on the Tomcat. Uh, you have that sense of pride, but at the same time, nobody talks about it. But everybody knows that ah, oh, he got the Tomcat. So for for Iran, Tomcat is and flying the Tomcat is a national pride. You know, so makes complete sense. Absolutely, I feel that way. It's a national pride for me. That's right. Mikey, you're answering you're answering uh, some of the questions that I wanted to ask. So this is awesome. I mean, you are saying some of the things that I was wondering about. So so thanks. Your questions. <laughs> uh, we got some more. Sure. Okay, okay. So once you get selected, your your uh, commander tells you that you're going F-14s. Uh, now you've already been training in the F-5, so you've got a little bit of experience and perspective. And you go to the F-14 training squadron. What did you uh, What did you think of that? You know of that organization was it was it like a a, a beautiful hangar with nice facilities uh, or was it really average? I mean, in, in the United States, squadron facilities are not Navy squadron facilities are are really just uh, adequate. So how about the F fourteen squadron over there? And then you know, tell us about was it busy? Were the instructors good guys? Just give us the laydown on that. Uh, it was overwhelming bio. I mean, oh my God, like it was like, um, I don't know, going from NASCAR into F1. And hey, wait like, a minute, I, wait a minute, you get some. <laughs> it was like, it, it was like, yeah, you're coming from like a fast car and stuff like that. But then you're going into F1. And I was like, okay, what is this? Like, I have like 20 buttons on my, on my steering wheel. And, you know, it, it was it was overwhelming. All of a sudden, you're dealing with all the electronics and complex systems, flying uh, F-14s in the United States, then came to Iran. And then they went through like a 10 years war experience on the Tomcat with uh, not enough equipment on it, with not enough service and maintenance on it. You're taking off with the plane and you have like a warning light on already. And you have to fly it. And you have to go and you have to fight and you have to win. So these guys are like in the next level. And then all of a sudden you, you're trying to keep yourself up with them. And uh, it was very intense. Um, in, the, in the Tomcat community, um, or maybe is the cultural thing in Iran that uh, usually the pilots get a lot of credit. And, uh, and the weasels, uh, not so much. They say, oh, the pilot did it. Um, so in order to break that, you always flying with, with your wizard that is very higher rank and is an instructor and the higher rank. So he's breathing on your neck and that, uh, kind of like even out the balance in the, in the cockpit. And some of them were already pilots that sit on the back seat. So they're like an F-14 pilots and they're sitting on the back seat. So you're touching that throttle or something a little bit, he knows. He said, uh, get the throttle back a little bit and put a little bit right rudder and do this and that. And you're like, Jesus Christ, like, <laughs> I know this. 
but yeah, they're all well experienced and they demand perfection. And it was very overwhelming. It was just like learning to fly all over again, especially with the TF 30 engines and the flight characteristics. Oh, here we go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a, yeah, you had, you had to be on your toes. There was no room, uh, you know, to get comfortable and sit back. Wow. Yeah. But, Luckily, though, you know, obviously you're a young guy, you're very enthusiastic. And even though it's challenging, you said, this is what it takes. I can do this. You know, you had confidence and skill. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm like surprised sometimes, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm flying the DCS and uh, on the Tomcat and stuff. Sometimes like, how the hell I did all this? I don't even remember this stuff. And I'm like, it's just like a whole learning curve again. But when you're young, you're focused and you don't have anything to do. Just eat, sleep, study, and go fly. Yeah. And the flight, uh, it was uh, pretty intense. And I remember like a couple of times on the F5, I did like three sorties in one day. And it was just like tiring. You know, on the Tomcat, it was less, but it was a lot of briefing, debriefing, uh, flying. Like you're not just going up there wasting time and gas. You're like every second that you're up there is programmed of what to do now hey um mikey so uh you, you seem to remember it seems like you you're you're talking as if you were still right back there i i know that you still remember quite a few of the systems from back at the time uh some them, some of them yeah yeah, Hi, yeah. I, how how well do you do you do you still remember all like your bold face and everything like that your emergency procedure uh Emergency procedures. Okay. Uh, Stick forward, neutral the, lateral. The, yeah, the, the spin. The spin is like uh, you never wanted to get the F-14 to spin. <laughs> I don't know. I think I put you, you on this. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. This was just, there was kind of a just a no. yes or a no. But I, it was like it was like no done like a like an inside um, uh, the outside uh, outside throttle idle inside throttle full max and. Uh, you know, kick the rudder and push the nose down and, you know, just pray your allergies is Buddha that, you know, it works and you pick up that speed and you get it, get it up. But uh, they were, they were very uh, intense about like um, the maneuvers and stuff. Like th- these guys were down to the whiskers. They would know exactly what's going to happen five seconds ahead. Yeah. Um, Man, unfortunately, I heard... So unfortunately, I one of them actually crashed uh, last year or a couple of years ago. One F-14 on the turn to final. It crashed, and I think the guy wasn't kicking enough rudder. And, uh, you know, the plane just nose just turned inside, inside the turn, and they couldn't recover, and they went down. Mm. Wow. And that was one of, one of the things that, you know, it's still like, you know, you have to be on your toes if you're not, you know, this, this plane would bite you. A lot of these problems with the D model didn't exist, but with the with the TF, like the moment you set up the power, you had to go through your maneuvers with that power. You couldn't just on the high AOA, you couldn't adjust the power. Otherwise, you would get the compressor stall, and off you go for full departure. That's right. So. That's right. Because uh, if I remember correctly, uh, you know, you had the greatest stall margin on your engine. We're talking about engine stall, not aerodynamic stall. The engine stall margin was greatest at military power meaning the highest basic engine setting. And the next highest setting was full afterburner. And if you modulated the throttles, you had a tendency to pop a motor, have a compressor stall, and things would get a little exciting. Did you ever, uh, did you, did you ever have any uh, airborne emergencies during your time there? 
Uh, airborne emergency, like you, you know, like sometimes you get the hydraulic, uh, you know. <laughs> oh really? On and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I had I had one time. I was like, I had the hydraulic, and I was like, oh okay, what's going on and stuff. I said so we turned, you know, the uh, the handle, the the gear handle. Yes, turn it, twist it, like uh, to put the emergency gear down. So we did that once. One time I landed, and I had like about thirty knots crosswind. I landed. And then I'm pumping the brakes, and there is no brakes. And uh, you know that little bow tie doesn't slow you down very much. And I'm like going down the runway, and I'm like having no brakes. And then we put the hook down, and uh, you'll be surprised how much uh, runway you you chew up. You know, by the time you find out, like ten thousand foot runway in Isfahan, or just like gone. Mm -hmm. And I'm like sitting there, and is like, and the guy is sitting back there. The instructor is like, okay, do something. I'm like, <laughs> okay hook down cable cable and we got the cable but i mean these guys these guys been in 10 years war right i mean things like this wouldn't scare them they're like sitting back there really calm and relaxed and just looking at you and see what you're doing and then you come out and said oh okay so that was good and stuff so we tried this something like this tomorrow so did they ever tell you at war stories you know or the, uh, yes, uh, well, we had we had some of them. Some of them wouldn't talk uh, talk about it, uh, but you know, uh, I was in uh, some of the bases that would see the F force because the F four guys were like the guys that were doing. Because as an F fourteen, we were just patrolling, and we are we were not allowed to enter Iraqi aerospace or anything like that. You were like completely restricted to stay there because the planes are very precious and valuable. But the F-4 guys were like the guys who were doing the whole backbone of the um, flying, uh, the reconnaissance guys. And like I personally saw the F-4 Phantom landing with, you know, those T antennas and stuff that they had back then? Yeah. You know, the T antennas. Uh, yeah, I saw the F-4 Phantoms landing with the T antennas and three branches stuck in their pylons <laughs> when they're landing. Okay. So, that's not good. Is it something I saw? Yeah. And this is after war when they were doing reconnaissance. So, okay. Let, before we, I, I'm going to get to the war stories, but real quick, in your uh, in your training, how much? Uh, what what kind of training did you do? Did did you do dogfight training? Was it intercept training? Um, mostly, mostly intercept. Uh, most most of the time they would do intercept. Uh, dogfighting, yes, you do it with the dissimilar, and um, you know with the F5s and stuff. Uh, but mostly intercept. The intercept was in the way that uh, the radar sectors will try to guide you and position you in the perfect uh, profile for the missile yeah. to be launched. As a person who was training on the Tomcat, I never carried any missiles. I My total time on the Tomcat was something around 116 hours. All right. So I, I was like nobody there. But practicing and uh, they expect you to do everything perfectly so most of the training that we had there were special trainings about intercepting mig 25 so that was still one of the did you practice uh, yeah we were practicing it like how you go around like mach 0.9 and you have to position it like this and you know i, I don't remember much of the details but yeah you had to be about mach 0.9 uh, and you uh, point it up and you shoot the missile and you you know, follow through. You don't like break just because it's a phoenix. You don't break. You follow through it with it. So there was like a whole booklet 
and it was just about mid 25. So that will show you that how important uh, cool. uh, the person of F14 was for for the MiG-25, and I believe that one of the generals, General Rostami, I believe, because he became like a chief, I, I don't know the English, or the chief commander of the Air Force. I think he was the he was the only guy or the first guy that shoot down the MiG-25 with, uh, with the Tomcat. Hmm. So, yeah, that was one of, that was, uh, I think, the first guy who shoot the MiG-25. <laughs> that would be something. <laughs> And then there was another another um, major, I believe. Uh, oh God, I forgot his name. I I knew his name, but he was the first guy who got the gun kill on the Tomcat on a on a Iraqi MiG. Do Do you know so, the details of either of those stories? What happened? Uh, the details The details I don't know much, but this is what we heard because when uh, when we were flying, he said, "Oh, General Rosami is coming to the base." And this, and I was like, "Oh, General Rosami!" I said, "Yeah, the guy who shot down the MiG-25." I was like, "Oh, wow, okay, yeah, there you go." Uh, but um, I tried to find some information about them on YouTube because I think that they they all interviewed uh, on the YouTube. Uh, one of the uh, top guys, I actually believe that I sent uh, send that um, interview to Bio yeah. um, uh, Colonel Adeli. Yeah, I believe that he. He was the he was the guy who shot down three Iraqi MiGs with one Phoenix missile over Kark Island, and uh, so he's he's in the United States and he's a well respected and well known and uh, very experienced Tomcat guy. Yeah, I, I saw that. That's a, um, a Museum of Flight uh, interview. Or no, yeah, an American American uh, fighter aces. Something like that. Yeah, it was a, it was a F fourteen Tomcat Association, so uh, something something like that. But I can I can find out uh, no, we, for you. We'll look it up. Yeah, we got it. Hey, hey, Mikey. So I know you said that you had only like one hundred and sixteen hours, right? Got it. So you were in the training process, and and uh, it was only a short period of time. But compare that to you know some of the guys who had been doing it for a while. How how much did would a fleet F fourteen pilot fly in a year. How many hours would they get? How many sorties? However, you counted it. Uh, the way the way that we were flying, basically, if you wouldn't fly for two weeks, uh, you had to do recurrency. So it it was it was like that. Like I mean, like they were they were really pushing you, and you would get a lot of flying flying done, and they would really push you to um, you know um, better to get better and better because they wanted to. Re- replace the sorry about the sound guys that's <laughs> all right uh, yeah they would, they would uh, try to um replacing uh, the experienced aging uh, pilots that uh, you know getting ready to retirement and they were um trying to uh use all their knowledge and experience and forward it into the new guys who are coming into the fleet but it was very hard to replace people like that because these guys were like trained in the u.s and they had so much of experience uh, over there coming back to Iran and during the war. Uh, so it was absolutely amazing. But uh, I was very lucky and fortunate to be able to uh, fly with these guys and learn from them. Well, okay, so that's that's a great answer. Um, think Now, the same, same line here. So those are the pilots we're talking about mostly. But, hey, it's a crew of two. What about all the Rios that, yeah. uh, you know, what's their experience level, professionalism, their skill level? You know what? What do you have to say about that? 
Yeah, they they were they were exactly the um, the same, you know, because uh, th- those guys were all like a like a great team. So they would try to pair us up with the very well experienced and senior uh, real officers to train us. And these guys were amazing too, because I mean, to be honest with you, we were just I just had this stick and I was flying around. These guys knew exactly. Hey, check your speed. Uh, make sure that you're at this speed. Make sure your angle is right. Make sure it's this. Uh, no, you're wrong. Your your intercept intercept angle is wrong. You're gonna overshoot it or you're gonna undershoot it. And I'm like, I was just like flying, and these guys basically telling me what to do. So um, the experience that they brought was amazing, and I think that we will learn eventually from them. If I was still there and I was flying, I would learn from them to get better pilot. But they were doing the they were doing the whole work. They were the unsung heroes. Crunch, doesn't this sound a lot more professional than I think a lot of people would expect? You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Mikey, so this is this is eye opening, the stuff you're telling us. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome, yeah, guys. You know, absolutely. I mean, again, this is uh, this was my experience. This is what I uh, what I experienced at that time. I don't know since 1993 until now what happened and right. the changes that happened there and uh stuff so i left when the mig 29s just came yeah. it was like a few years that mig 29 just came in there hmm. so so the air crews and you know your uh, you said you had two weeks uh, currency requirements and professional air crews how about uh, aircraft reliability when you uh, manned up did you uh did you always launch? You said earlier that uh, guys would have uh, caution lights and they'd fly and they'd do their mission anyway. Um, when you did, you have a lot of airplane problems. Did they have spares available? Um, I think that was the biggest challenge that uh, that the Air Force was uh, dealing with because uh, uh, Tomcat was very heavy maintenance. I believe it was like one one to twenty four, one to twenty five. So every for every one hour. You needed about 25, 26 hours of maintenance on it, something like that. But again, do you remember that um, we were not getting much parts, right, uh, for this? I don't even know how these guys were, like, getting these planes flying. Uh, they were cannibal, uh, cannibalism, you know, some of some of them and putting it on the other ones. Some of the planes we were flying, they're flight-worthy, but they're not combat-worthy. So... Um, you know, like the radar is not working properly or the weapon system on it is not working properly. But for training, the pilot is fine. Mm-hmm. So you did get or, airborne and have no radar sometimes. Yes. So, but the guys were experienced and uh, you go on the radar and the desk, you know, the section radars, you know, they will uh, they will complete your training. You would, you would do your training. They will vector you. They will like put you in the right angle for intercept and stuff like that. So all the simulations. And uh, so you would get the training done, but the plane is not the combat combat certified plane because you know because of the radar, because of the weapon system, because of the other things that it had What's wrong with it. Okay, how about uh, how about other things that uh, that the F fourteen needed? Um, you know, start carts and electrical and all that. Uh, did uh, those? Do- those were okay. Those, uh, I mean, like the start cards, you know, yeah, that would, that would work. If not, they would bring something else, you know, and, and that way, you know, the mechanics were like pretty good. Uh, one thing that you mentioned, I remember, is that uh, for beginners, we were not allowed to taxi out of the bunkers. 
So the student pilots, uh, the planes are all uh, parked outside and you're taxing on the ramp. So even even on the F5s, we were not we were not allowed to taxi out of the bunkers until you reach certain level of proficiency. Then you could because there was like a huge like a six foot wall right in front of the bunker, right for the bomb. Yeah. Thing. So if you would taxi a little bit off, you would tip the wings into the into the walls, right? Now I got to tell you, as a guy whose call sign is Crunch here, you know the fact that you <laughs> might consider a pilot might accidentally taxi into a stationary object. Personally, I find it somewhat surprising. <laughs> yeah. So so that was one thing. Yeah. I, I now now that we were talking, I was remember saying, wait a minute. Yeah, I was not taxiing out of the bunker. You know, <laughs> somehow. The, the planes were always outside on the ramp. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Well, awesome. Crunch, Yo. crunch, get us back in the air, buddy. Yeah, I know. I'm sitting here going, wait a minute. Where were we? Where were we? Hey, so now earlier you were talking about, um, you know, the primary mission of the F-14 was to counter the Foxbat threat, right? That was kind of what you were thinking about. And uh, at the same time, though, you know, that was, you know, way back. Now you're getting into the 90s. You know, the U.S. is over there. The U.S. carriers are over there. The uh, U.S. Air Force has a presence. You know, Gulf War has just finished um, in 91. Um, what's the, what was the attitude towards, like, the U.S. threat? Because we're no longer allies at this point. What was the feeling in the in the fleet at that point? Uh, to be honest with you, um, again, uh, we, we try to stay out of uh, politics and religion and stuff like that, but somehow uh, everything is like so integrated with the, with each other that uh, we cannot um, talk about one without the other one. And the thing is that um, most of the Iranian Air Force pilots were highly educated in the United States. You know, some of them had friends there. Some of them even after the war left Iran and came to the United States mm -hmm. and they're still living there. Mm -hmm. um, and they were always uh, the black sheep of the Iranian forces for uh, the current regime of Iran. Mm, interesting. They were never they were never trusted. Mm. Um, I heard the stories from, as I mentioned to you, we had so many relatives in the Air Force, and one of them we call uncles and stuff like that. Um, when when the revolution happened in Iran. Uh, there were a lot of pilots who were executed. Mm. Uh, I remember there was apparently there was supposed to be a military coup that happened in one of the Air Force bases in Iran, and somehow the information leaked, and overnight uh, about 140 fighter pilots were executed in one night. Wow. You know, and they were all F-4 pilots, and so the Iranian regime never trusted uh, the fighter pilots. Never, they tried to replace them with more loyal um, crew, but those guys were not in the same level of intelligence or smart to to be re replacing these guys. Mm. Uh, so um, the, what I heard was that some of them flew their missions into Iraq with their ejection seat disabled by the regime, by the, uh, by the crews of the Islamic regime. They disabled their ejection seat. Some of them came directly from the cells, the jail cells, from the death row, and they put in the cockpit to fight. 
which in the ironic way, if you think about it, Saddam Hussein did a great favor to these guys by invading Iran, because all these guys were in the death row to be executed. And if the war wouldn't happen, these guys would be executed. So they literally pulled them out of the jail cells from the death row and put them in the in the cockpit and said, go fight. Oh, wow. by the way, we're going to disable your ejection seat too, so don't think about ejecting. So, so, um, and even to this day, after all these sacrifices that these guys have done, the regime still don't trust them. And so there are a couple books, if you, if you guys are interested, written by this, uh, historian and uh, collector named Tom Cooper. Oh yeah. And, and he said about the Iranian F-14s in combat and yep. Iranian f fours in combat. One of the, the most um, dangerous missions that will happen on the F-4s were the uh, reconnaissance missions. And uh, when I knew one of the guys and the reconnaissance uh, mission, the F-4 reconnaissance, because you know that they, they take the radar off and everything and you go only solo and you have no backup, right? So their model and their, um, on the squadron for those reconnaissance mission was uh, unarmed, alone, unarmed, unafraid. And these were these were the guys. And Saddam put a huge price for shooting down the reconnaissance pilots. And one of them for a few years done like this super um, dangerous missions over Iraq to getting all these reconnaissance pictures and everything. And after four or five years of servicing and serving his country and stuff, the regime executed him, uh, accused him of espionage. Mm. Wow. Wow. So this, this was the... This was the uh, the environment, the mentality that uh, these pilots had to work on and uh, fight for their country while the regime is uh, trying to find an excuse to kill them and get rid of them. Wow. Okay. So that's a I, wow. That's a, that's kind of rough to th- imagine. But uh, wow. So what was the what was the concern about like a, a threat from Israel or, or anything like at the time? Uh, Again, uh, not getting into into politics, but um, um, and again, this is personally I say it from myself. I I don't want to represent anybody or anything like that. This is what I observed in my time that I lived in Iran. Yeah, I've always I always think that I have a pretty good handle on geopolitics and what's going on. But I tell you, I learn something every day because my view of what I think things are is not always accurate. So that actually tells it's me like, quite a bit. It's like you have a fight, you have a fight in the house with the family, but as soon as somebody from outside come in and fight you, you know, you get together and fight against that person that came from outside. Interesting uh, how things like that work and how they affect you know the man on the politics, the man in the <laughs> cockpit, right? Hey, let me ask you a question that uh, when when we were talking, thinking about this, I was dying to ask because uh, this is something else that that shows up in these uh, in books. Uh, People claim that uh, Iran used the F-14 as a mini AWACS because it has, uh, you know, I mean, the F-14 clearly has a powerful radar, good range, good, good uh, scan volume. Do you do you recall uh, did you guys do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> why wouldn't Why wouldn't you use that beautiful Aug Nine, right? So, yeah, the, the basically the F-14s will cover uh, the F-4s and the F-5s and their missions, 
So I personally, I was in the training again. Right. Sure. One of the one of the training is that yeah, you you go in the two man formation, all right, and then you cover you cover the the package that are delivering the um, the ordinance, right? So like if you're on the left side, you cover the left left side package and your left wing, and if you're right side, you cover the right side of the package, and you both cover each other's sixes and your front. Uh, so you stay at a higher altitude and you kind of like provide them uh, coverage with the radar and you inform them. Okay, good. I, you know, I guess the reason we didn't do that is because we had E2s and, and capability like that. But uh, all right, well, I wish we had. <laughs> you have to use the, you have to use what you have. And, yeah. you know, the F-14 was the best for it especially with the radar, with the AUG-9. Yeah, it, it, that's great. Well, it's that's one of those things that I had heard before. I'm like, hey, I heard that they do this. And, and I was like, wow, that makes sense. But I, it's nice to have confirmation. So what, now, let's say, yeah. now let's say that you're the actual fighter. You're out there running that intercept. Um, what kind of air-to-air weapons loadout would you, uh, would you train for or would you have? What kind of missiles? Okay, so, so um, I don't know, in the beginning of the of the war apparently for some reason they couldn't use the sidewinders and sparrows so mostly the phoenix were effective on the on the on the f-14 hmm. huh okay they were using phoenix so i don't know why the sidewinders and sparrows were not uh, activated and 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 the planes maybe because the planes were too precious they didn't want them to get too too close but there were many engagements that uh, you know they got they got engaged with like a six or seven Iraqi mix and only single F-14 uh, engaging. And no sidewinder. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and the other order that the, the Air Force would give them is that the missiles are too precious, don't use them. As long as you make the Iraqis run away, the mission is done. Uh, so try not to use your missiles. The missiles are too precious. Try not to... Shoot just try to get out there and you put your radar out there and then they get the indication like, oh, I'm getting looked at by an F-14 AUG-9 radar. I better run away because they're going to shoot me from, you know, 200 miles away. Surprisingly, this is what this is what the Iraqi pilots were mm-hmm. doing. And uh, sometimes they would they would say what they would say. say Arba, Arba means like 14. In, and and they will say that and they would they would uh, get away. As soon as you, you get that radar lock on them, they will run away. They'll go away. Hmm. So, uh, but I don't know why uh, the the sparrows and phoenix, uh, the sparrows and sidewinders were not installed or working on the F-14s in the early days of war. Then they tried to replace them with the Hawk missile to replace the uh, phoenix with the Hawk missile. They were putting the Hawk missiles on them. I've heard of that. I've seen pictures of that. Yeah, and they were they were like. I don't know if they were successful or not. Then they start putting the MK82s on the F14s and they wanted to use the F14s to for bombing. And uh I think they got successful. They put the rails on and stuff. Again, I didn't see anything myself, but yeah, they, they got successful, but then I don't know what happened to that project because we never we never got the training for the air to ground ordinance in the Tomcat. Uh, so I don't know what happened with that. Probably they got those uh, fancers from Iraq and they uh, save the F-14s from carrying bombs. Mm. 
they were uh, they were doing all sort of experience and, and then later they claimed that they reverse engineered the phoenix missiles and the new phoenix missiles are even better than the original ones so okay. whatever truth is, is into that right i don't know again there might be the politics behind it so they get a little bit closer to russia it says hey so if we give you this technology what do we get for it and or do a joint operation so you help us reverse engineer this and but we're, we we're just speculating now though really yes yeah. yes so we don't know so say the reverse engineering the phoenix i don't know yeah but they're carrying it you see that and this is why i asked about the uh the using the tomcat as a uh, as an AIC, uh, mini AWACS, because there's so many things, articles and speculations written, and it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. So, I mean, there've been a lot of claims. Exactly. And I've been, I've been out of the country for like 30 years now, so I don't even know. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not even interested, so I don't really follow it <laughs> Yeah. until I see something, something comes up and is like interesting for me that I was like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on in here? So... And uh, one of the interesting things I saw was I saw a blackjack bomber was escorted by two Iranian F-14s. Oh yeah, yeah, I mm. saw that. That's a that's a striking, that's a striking photo. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Wow. Okay, I got a question. Sure. Alert posture. Every U.S. Navy Tomcat guy is very familiar with. Alert, sitting in the alert, sitting in the ready room in your flight gear or sitting on the flight deck. How about you guys, yeah. Mikey? Did you and your uh yeah. your fellow pirates oh, you, yeah. you sit alerts? You stood alerts? Oh yeah, you you wear that sexy speed chaps and you're sitting in there and the phone rings and the alarm goes and you're like, Okay, where am I going? And you're running and everybody's running toward you and two people jumping on you and strapping you and you have to go and press. Yeah, so they 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 are very meticulous with that because uh, you know uh, with the country and the way that uh, all those guys during the ten year war have been trained, it's very important. You you have very little time to you know prepare takeoff and get yourself over over the Persian Gulf to the Khark Islands, which is the main oil ex export, right? Right. And that's your primary mission to to protect uh, the 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 oil uh, export and stuff like that. So yeah. That one is, uh, I mean, for, for all of them, for even the F4 Phantom guys, you know, they practice that all the time, all the time. So, yeah, every once in a while you get that alert and you have to sit there with your speed chaps and ready to go. So you you were only, you were in training. You probably never, I mean, you don't have to really train for the alert in the rag, yeah. like our rag. So you never sat alert, but you know that they did it, right? Yes, but, uh, but. Yeah, you, so you prepare yourself because once once your time comes, they expect you to do it hundred uh, percent. I mean, it is cool. I mean, from my experience and crunch. I hope I'm sure you used to plenty of alerts. Well, I mean, a lot. You spend a lot of time just sitting there. Hopefully, you've got books or letters or something to do. But if you launch on an alert launch, it's a heck of a way to start a flight. And then you know, a lot of times there's something cool at the end of it. So. Yeah, well, uh, at that at that part, uh, it's uh, it is it is kind of like uh, exciting. Yeah, but at the same time, is uh, 
you know, you, you're on your toes because you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes, you know, the, the alert comes up and is uh, you don't even know that, oh, the commander ordered for the alert. It wasn't real. Right. It was just a drill. But you never know. Because you, you get the call, you <laughs> no. go, and you don't know what you're going to find. You might be like, holy cow, it's another fighter. It's a bomber. Or maybe it's just a maritime patrol with no weapons, and you're just going to go escort it. Or there's yeah. a boat. I mean, sometimes you get called away on an alert for a boat, you know? I mean, yeah. unless it, unless they're shooting at you, it's like, okay, yeah, there's a boat down there, right? But, uh, <laughs> uh, hey, so I did have one question from earlier. You had mentioned... Um, you were talking earlier about a, a you know, an air, one of the airplanes crashed. I guess it was relatively recently. Um, and basically, I just wanted to circle back to that. And you know, do you recall there being many mishaps or anything? I mean, even maybe not even just the F-14, but other aircraft having having issues, having mishaps. Uh, yeah, I lost one of my friends on an F-4. Mm. We were having breakfast together, and then the lunchtime he was dead. I don't know what happened, but they were coming on the final, and I don't know. Somehow they lost they lost the engine, and he was flying with the instructor. And uh, uh, the F four it has like an aerodynamic of a coke bottle. Yeah. Like without without those engines, you cannot glide. Right. It doesn't it doesn't go, and especially being like a complete dirty on the final. So what happened was that they uh, tried to. Um, avoid hitting the buildings where the personnel's family live mm. at the at the south side of the of the runway wow. so they tried to avoid that and by the time that they tried to avoid that the plane turned completely upside down so they couldn't even eject oh geez wow it's a tough business i mean this is a dangerous business i mean we all we all we all know somebody right i mean it's this is a really tough business i don't care what nationality you are yeah and that one uh, uh I, I carry it always with me, and uh, after the launch, I had to do patterns and uh, passing his uh, wreckage. Mm. But that's a reality. Yikes. Man, that's what uh, that's what it is. I mean, how many times you guys had a mishap on the boat and you had to clean it up right away because uh, there there are there are guys uh, lining up to land. Right, we yep. have to move this. I, yep, it, it's very unfortunate. But that's that's part of our life. Well, we've flown more yes, of those airplanes uh, than you guys have, and I guarantee you, we've crashed more too. So, I mean, there <laughs> there are quite a few at yeah. the bottom of the ocean out there. But yeah, so the part that you talked about about like you know the pilots. I mean, we are all pilots, and uh, uh, one thing we love is like flying. And no matter where we come from or the background, you know, once we get together, all those uh, politics and views that the other people have it goes away and it comes to that pure love of flying and what we are doing and uh nothing else matters because and all of a sudden you we talk to each other like we know each other for years and uh this is uh this is the beauty of it mikey you're very philosophical which is good that's good <laughs> yes absolutely hey. i came close to the to that and uh like you you know that uh you know, I uh, I was accused of being a spy for Americans and Israelis, and with my background growing up out of the country and stuff, it's give them a solid uh, uh, proof that I'm a spy, and they wanted to kill me. And uh, so, luckily, my dad was able to save me, and uh, you know, I escaped from 
Iran and came over and uh, I got the second chance to live. So every day I live, I think about it. If this is the last day of my life, what I want to do, what I want to accomplish today. And uh, so when you get the second chance to live, you look at the life in a different perspective, in different views. Things are that not important for other people and taking it for granted every day and you cherish it the moment you wake up. And things that are very important for other people, you don't you don't care about it because it's not really important. Mikey, I was I was going to ask you if you had anything else you wanted to say, but I think you just gave us our uh, wrap up statement. I mean, I'll I'll give you the uh, the courtesy of of having a thought to see if there's anything you want to add. But at this time, uh, thinking back on the interview and 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 everything, I think you have given us some unexpected stories, some exciting stories, and always some interesting stories. Yeah. And so, uh, so thanks for uh, for joining us today. I'll let you take a moment, see if you want to add anything, and then Crunch will probably uh, sign us out. All right, and thank you very much, guys. I'm I'm very fortunate to be talking to you guys. And, uh, you know, uh, discussing um, all these things and our love for flying and the plane that we flew and we all have that in common and, you know, in that being part of that community. Uh, I definitely miss uh, Snort. I had a great talk with him and I wish, you know, like uh, uh, he was here and I could see him again. I was really looking forward to that. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are many things in life that you can cherish it. And this is one of the moments that I'm very fortunate and lucky to have in my life to be sitting in here and talking to you guys and enjoying the life. And uh, hopefully we can one day meet together and have a beer and talk more. I, I love sounds it. Good. Mikey, that sounds stupendous. It sounds great. Uh, I want to say thank you very much for coming on on the show today, because I tell you what, I. Me personally, this is one of those things where I'm like, hey, this would never happen. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure some of our <laughs> listeners probably feel the same way. So I really, really appreciate it. I think this is great. And, uh, you know, uh, best of luck to you and, and the family. And, and thanks for coming on. Well, that sure was uh, interesting as can be. I mean, we got a lot of information uh, on both their capabilities and the operations of Iranian Tomcats. Yeah, and, and holy cow, Bio, I can't believe that we actually had the opportunity to speak with a real live Iranian F-14 pilot. Can't, couldn't, but, you know, I think that's really impressive that we were able to, to uh, you know, have that opportunity. And one of the things that I found the most uh, interesting to me was the fact that their intention was actually to stay feet dry in mostly a defensive posture with the F-14. I just kind of assumed that they would use it offensively. So that was a surprise to me. Yeah, who knew? Okay, I hope you'll join us in two more weeks for another episode of the F-14 TomCast. All right, see you then. You've been listening to the F-14 TomCast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14TomCast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.